one. Hello and welcome to back to the Mike and Mike podcast. Uh, we are better this time of getting back to you. It's not been a month or three months. I think it's just been a couple of weeks, um, but we're excited uh, to be back live with you. Uh, joining me always from beautiful Somerset, Kentucky is my esteemed colleague, Michael Ray. Michael, how's everything down your way? Damp is how I would describe the morning. Uh, it's, uh, it's a dark and stormy morning, my friend, but the... Uh, Coffee's hot. Always good. There you go. There you go. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think we're gonna get a get a little wet today, but it's all good. Good day to be uh, in front of a podcast or listening to a podcast, uh, for that matter. If you're on the road, so um, as you all know, that our our loyal, faithful listeners, uh, what we're trying to do here is to uh, take some Bible characters, some lessons that we learn from Scripture, and um, try to pluck the business lessons out of them. So if you've stumbled upon this um, podcast by mistake, uh, stay, stick around for a few minutes. Uh, but what we're, I'll give our normal disclaimer as we start this thing is that, you know, the most important thing about any of this that we talk about is the spiritual application without question. Um, neither one of us would ever argue that point. But we also think there is a secondary application of some business principles of people that were successful or wildly unsuccessful, as we've looked at uh, a few of those characters. Um, so again, wisdom is knowing the end at the beginning. and The wisest lessons that we learn are learning from others. So, you know, everybody says they want to go through the school of hard knocks. The problem with the school of hard knocks is it's expensive. You know, it's a whole lot cheaper to look across the street and say, I like what that guy did. And what that guy did was terrible. So I should never do that. Um, so again, that's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to take, you know, several thousand years of biblical history and pluck some stories out of that. Um, so with all that being said, and with our, our careful disclaimer, Michael, where do we find ourselves this morning? We're going to go to Ezra chapter 10. And, um, you know, this is, this is a bit of a, a deep cut, um, a character that, you know, uh, a month ago, I, I would not have known the name of. And uh, some some study in our Bible class at Southside kind of unearthed this character. Um, and then you and I had a, had a conversation about it. What an interesting kind of case study he was in the in the conversation. And so uh, so that kind of kind of leads us to here. And, uh, it and is uh, I immediately preached on it to rip off Michael's ideas. So, yeah, that's the kind of friends we are. I'm glad you I'm glad you covered that. And I didn't have to. Um, <laughs> but it is it is remarkable that. You know, you can find these uh, somewhat obscure characters, and they end up kind of delivering a pretty powerful, pretty powerful message. And so, I'll I'll I'll, I'll do a little bit of t table setting here um, as far as where we are in the Book of Ezra. You know, in 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 the big scheme of of human history, you know, we we are. Uh, let's just there, there'll be a lot of debate about this, but just just roughly, we're 500 BC, and. We are we're in the time of the exiles who have returned from captivity, and so if you remember the sin of, of the nation of Israel, eventually wiped them off the map, and the sin of the nation of Judah um, eventually took them into Babylonian captivity. And through providence and the grace of God, uh, they were allowed to return to the promised land under the Persian king Cyrus, and and then given some uh, given some additional freedoms under the Persian king Darius. And so the exiles have returned. Um, and the temple has, has been completed after some delay. 
I mean, there, there is no straight line happy story with the Israelites. It's, it's been completed as we get to Ezra chapter seven. And, and now Ezra is being sent to help um, help teach the people the, the the laws of God, which apparently have gone in somewhat of disarray. And so it's pretty interesting that if you read Ch uh, Ezra chapter seven, eight, nine, as we lead into kind of our core text here, Ezra is sent um, with a just a almost unfathomable treasure in his caravan. Um, just an enormous sum of money to take back to, to the temple um, from the king. And then he's also given a tremendous amount of authority, a lot of treasure and a lot of authority. Ezra shows back, uh, not, I don't know if he shows back, he shows up on the scene in Jerusalem. And so, again, you should have this triumphantly uh, exciting and um, positive time and as you see throughout scripture, a positive time is met with a with the revealing of a failure. And in, and in chapter nine and verse one, there's this revelation of a failure that almost immediately Ezra is brought to Ezra's attention that there's just a boatload of intermarriage um, with the exiles, and that the just like in the days of Solomon, that the nations round about they're the they've taken some of these foreign women as their wives and they're corrupting the worship and the uh, and the, the praise of, of Yahweh. And so Ezra's immediately met with this, uh, with this crisis. And chapter nine is all about a prayer that, you know, Ezra's, Ezra's pretty uh, introspective and somber at times. And he starts pulling his beard out and, and, uh, and, and immediately begins praying. And that's where we get to in chapter 10. That Ezra is in this public prayer, um, telling God how much that even though God has favored Israel um, to this point, and just providentially and amazingly, they continue to fail. And but we get to the end of chapter nine. Ezra has poured his heart out, but there's no, there's been no tangible action. You know, there's been no, there's been no political action. There's been no spiritual action about are we going to do anything about it? Ezra has very clearly pointed out the magnitude of the problem. Um, and very publicly um, and emotionally told about the, the mess we're in, we ain't done anything to fix it. Um, and so that, that kind of gets us to chapter 10. Gotcha. I'm, I'm going to add one quick um, point here that I think is interesting in this. So in, in all of the chaos of all the stuff that they're doing, the, the reason this comes to light is somebody finds the book of the law and they start reading it. Right. You know, after all of the rubble and chaos and living in Babylon, they start reading the law. And so I'm convinced that this comes up as they're reading through Deuteronomy. Right. If we think about those texts like Deuteronomy 25 through 30, that, you know, if you get to that section, it says, if you're faithful and you follow me, here's all the blessings. Right. And, and we understand that they got every one of those blessings under Solomon and at their zenith, they were as good as it ever would be. But the other side of the coin, God points out there as well, that if you leave me, if you chase these idols, if you intermarry foreign women, I will destroy you. And guess what? All the curses happened, right? Uh, it's, it's one of those interesting things. You've got this kind of, you know, 
cause and effect there that God says, if you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. And we saw Israel both do good and were blessed and then do terrible and were punished. And so no doubt as they read these things, they're thinking, this is what happened, right? We've intermarried and God punished us and destroyed us. We're coming out of captivity. Our 70 years is over of captivity that uh, Jeremiah prophesied about. And now we've gone back and intermarried these foreign women again. No doubt they're thinking we're getting ready to get destroyed again, right? This is what's going to happen if we continue down this path. Now, as Michael rightly pointed out, one of the very interesting things about them coming back is, you know, Israel as, as much as, and, and really the, the children of God um, from the Old Testament, as much as kind of the judges cycle was a dichotomy of what was going on within the judges, that same cycle kind of happens throughout Genesis to Malachi. You know, they call out to God, God answers, sends a deliverer, a prophet, a judge, and then they start to come back around. But the problem with the judges cycle is the more times they go around that cycle, the worse they get until you get a judge like Samson that I'm not even sure really cared about the nation of Israel. I mean, he did some good things, but he wasn't really a patriot or a zealot. Now we get to, they've come home out of exile and they had all the problems trying to rebuild the temple, trying to rebuild the wall. This is the only time throughout all of scripture where you have two prophets that are preaching at the same time to the exact same group of people. Like I, both Haggai and Zechariah come, Haggai with the hammer or the rod and Zechariah with the carrot trying to get them going here, right? Like to, to, to do the task, to continue what they're doing. And yet they finally stumble through it, sort of. And we get to this point and, and Ezra shows up and he is just a wreck because he sees the writing on the wall, if you will, right? He sees where this is going based on what they've done. And, and one of the things that as you read, like the end of chapter nine and chapter 10, that I find is outstanding is that Ezra starts this and Michael, correct me, because Michael's been teaching this in, in Bible class, but Ezra starts this off by himself, doesn't he? He's out there weeping and praying and calling out to God and prostrating himself by himself. And then he ends up with a crowd. Yeah, it certainly appears that um, now I'm not going to say that he was the only righteous you know, Jew in Israel. Yeah. This, somebody brought this stuff to his attention. And so somebody else was distressed about this. But it does seem that I don't, I don't there's no indication that Ezra was trying to draw a crowd here necessarily. He's just out, you know, in uh, kind of pouring his heart out. But a crowd develops. And I think because of his position of authority, and we'll get to that, because of his position of authority, um, and because of his sincerity, he draws a crowd. Um, to your point earlier about the law, you know, you know, it, it appears that a lot of the the law of um, the law of God, especially for the exiles, was had to be handed down orally. And you know, as as the priesthood and as, uh, as some of that gets corrupted, you can imagine what happens to the law of God. And so, one of the things that's noted specifically in Ezra chapter seven and verse fourteen is that Ezra has a copy of the law in his hand. Uh, and that's, that's, that is not a, a flippant statement is that he, he literally comes with a copy of the law, which may or may not have been, you know, 
known in or, or had a, a physical copy in Jerusalem. And so, so again, you get, you get this, um, you get this really holy and righteous person coming to this unholy area or this area that has become corrupted. And, and he, he, I'm, I'm going to quote Ezra here from chapter, from chapter nine. I am ashamed to lift my face and I, and I blush to come before you, O God. So this, this very penitent, um, depressed, uh, how have, how could we have done this to ourselves again this quickly? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a pretty, um, you know, if we just kind of stopped at the end of chapter nine, to your point, it's a pretty depressing state. Like we, uh, oops, I did it again. Um, <laughs> like we, we're, we, we're going to get, we're going to get cleaned off this hill of Jerusalem again by some foreign power because of, because of, because of what we've done. So anyway, I think that sets the table. So, you know, again, we're, we find ourselves in chapter 10, chapter 10, verse one, Ezra, you know, we, we kind of is, is the summation really of chapter nine, right? You know, when one verse, here's where we're at. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. Like that's all of chapter nine in that sentence. Yes. Then a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered out of Israel for the people wept bitterly. So the, the conviction and leadership of Ezra caused a ripple effect, right? It was, it was Ezra's not preaching to the people, right? We, we don't, I don't, I don't want anybody to get a picture that Ezra's up there with the law and is hellfire and brimstoning these people out of the pulpit. Cause that's not what, what's happening. That may happen in Nehemiah. That may have, that may happen in Nehemiah. Yes. (laughs) But that, you know, when Ezra comes to read the law, but that, that is pretty clearly not what's happened here. Yeah. Ezra and Nehemiah are very much fire and ice. (laughs) You know, Ezra is far more weeping over the state of the people and Nehemiah has got a stick. Um, Yes. So, but we see Ezra's reaction then provokes a reaction out of the people. And, and that's where we, we find our, our character today in verse 2. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord, of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. So, you know, this is, I, I, again, terrible analogies because that's what me and Michael are good at. But this is... You, you primarily. Go ahead. Uh, this is the proverbial vote of confidence, right? We've talked to the border regions. We're behind our coach, right? That, you know, we've had some hard times, but we've got the guy to fix it. We're not looking to replace him. This is our vote of confidence. This is our guy. The AD stepping out from the crowd and saying, this is your task. Be strong and do it. But, but here's the thing that I think is, is tremendous when we think about this task. Ezra rightfully is weeping because 
academically, this all sounds simple. Oh, you married a bunch of foreign women? Get rid of them and the kids. Yeah, real simple. But life doesn't work like that. You know, there is feelings, there is emotions. They married them. They have children with them. You know, we can, you know, sit in a classroom and say, well, that's what they should do. But we need to think about the logistics of doing that. How do you even do that? And you're asking people to make a very hard commitment to say, I'm choosing God over a spouse, and I'm going to throw this spouse and these kids out to be of service to God. There's a lot. There's a big ask of the people to do this in order to turn back to God. I think it's, it's very difficult. It's a terrible situation. I think that's part of why Ezra's weeping. One, look at the mess we've got ourselves into. But two, how do we even clean this thing up? You know, how do we, we gonna be, begin to go about doing that? And are we going to be willing to? Um, because, you know, I, I don't know if we could comprehend the social, um, the social kind of upheaval that it's going to cause when there's, a, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand uh, prominent families that are kind of ripped apart simultaneously in this pretty close-knit small group of exiles. I mean, that is a, I mean, you just, you just kind of, kind of game play that out a little bit or think through that, how, how that would affect just the, you know, every interaction in social life um, like that. We're talking about a heavy lift here. Like this is, this is extraordinarily significant. And I'm not sure it varies depending on what commentator you look at, but, you know, let's just say that this is 10% of the people. I I don't know what the number is um, because the population and who's there and who wasn't. But anyway, let's say it's 10% of the people. Let's, let's use something that, that hits a little closer to home. Imagine Michael that, you know, uh, Kyle stands up, Sunday morning and says 10% of these marriages at Southside got to be busted up. Wives and kids are out. You know, I mean, think about how, how big of an impact that is on a small closed group. Same thing in Danville. I'm not picking on Southside by any stretch of imagination, but think about whoever you are listening to this podcast this morning. Think maybe 10% of your church family all of a sudden gets busted up. I mean, one you know, having the courage to do it in the first place, right? But but two, there's a whole other set of logistics. You know, today there's different things, you know, wives can work and there's public benefits and all that. But remember, we're we're 500 BC, roughly. Women can't own property. They they can't work. This is an agricultural-based society. I mean, who takes care of all of that? Yeah, we're, we're 500 BC in a pretty remote area at this point in a city that doesn't have a wall. I mean, I mean, it's uh, it's it's not great. And, you know, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole this morning of what, what would these uh, wives have been left with. Uh, you know, I think there's enough biblical example of Abraham and what he provided for um, uh, Hagar, Hagar, when 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 she left, you know, I don't. I, I'm, I, I hope, I feel that, you know, these, these wives wouldn't have just necessarily been left destitute now to die in the desert, but be that as it may, it's a, I mean, it is a, again, just an emotional um, and social upheaval here. Mm-hmm. And were there people who said, Hey, 
hey, you know, this is this is pretty radical, Ezra. You know, I think God wants us to, you know, I know God's law, you know, and what it says, but don't you think that God wants to keep these families together? Uh, don't don't I mean, you think do God you think, wants us to be happy? Do you, you don't think somebody's think, raised that objection? Yeah, I mean, do, do you think that uh, Ezra heard a lot of the same objections that we would hear today? No question. Look, Ezra, I mean, look, the sin has been committed here. We've already done this, but now we got a family. You certainly don't want to do anything to this family, do you? And um, and so with with all that in mind, and, and the people are, are very clear, and it would be it would be crystal clear to these people what the implications of this are. And so with all that as background, what do we learn from our from our boy Shechaniah? Um, and I think that that's where you know, what's the, as we talk about business principles here, you know, there's a lot of spiritual implications on marriage and, and uh, following God. And, but is there a business principle here? It is. So I'll, I'll give my two cents here and then I'll let you modify and correct it. Um, <laughs> that, you know, for whatever Ezra was in a, in a, in a position of great authority. And he's been given authority by the King of Persia, like the, the most powerful person literally in the world at that time. Mm-hmm. He's been given authority by that person. And, and he, and he comes with, with righteousness and he's got good, he's got good, let's say good ideas just to be as generic as possible. A person with, with great authority and with great ideas is insignificant unless there is the first person who comes out and says, let's do this. We're with you. Mm-hmm. Um, that, um, and, and, you know, what we know about Shechaniah is contained in verse two. I mean, it is not as if he is a prominent Israelite that we know of. Nope. Perhaps he had some social standing, but there's no evidence of that. I mean, his, his family is listed in Ezra chapter one, but it's of no prominence. And, and his so, family's listed in a little bit with ones that intermarried. Correct. Yeah, which is another level of this. His 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 brothers may may have very well. His father may have been very well been one that had an issue here. He um, may be. Yeah. So, but you know, in order to start any kind of movement, in order to start any kind of progress, sometimes the second person is just as important as the first. I mean, the, the first person who wants to lead the people is a lunatic fringe <laughs> until he's until he's got some um, until oh. he's got some followers that are respected. And so, like, sometimes it's the second person who says, no, this is right. We're going to do this. That's just as important as as the first. And so, you know, Shechaniah, in this case, in my judgment, is, is as important as Ezra. Ezra laid out the case. But Ezra's not the one who started the actual movement to clean up the mess. It was Shechaniah. It was this um, kind of unremarkable um, Jew who may have had problems of his own, who 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 was the second one to stand up and say, uh, "No." And and that just that virtue, I think it's so powerful. It is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Um, that, that we are with you, how to be a follower, man, everybody wants to, everybody wants to be, you know, be the king and everybody wants to be the leader and what dramatic changes we would make if we were in charge for a day. 
Right. But who who wants to be who wants to be the best follower? Who wants to like that's man, give me that guy. Give me the one who is when is willing to stick his neck out and get something done for the right idea. We are with you. Let's do it. That's that's pretty powerful. Yeah. What what's very interesting, it, you know, a, a quick Google search will tell you that leadership and leadership books are a billion dollar industry. Follower books are not. <laughs> you know, there's when was the last time you picked up a book that said how to be a great follower? No, it's everybody wants to be a leader. Everybody wants to be a boss. Everybody wants to be in management. Everybody wants to be a CEO. But here's the problem with that. If everybody's in leadership, who's actually doing the work? Right. I, I mean, we we everybody wants to aspire to this or how to be a better leader or a servant leader, all this other stuff. All of that's all well and fine. Except one, you know, page one of every leadership book should be not everybody can do this. Right. Leadership's not easy. It's very hard. And, and we make it and people write these books that says, you know, any Joe Schmoke can lead. No. First of all, not just not everybody's built to do that because there's hard things that need to come. But secondly, you can't lead if nobody follows you. And, and, and there's just as much that needs to be done and taught to be an effective follower. What Shekinah did here, to Michael's point, this is the movement. When he said, this is your task, you're our leader, you're our guy, and we're right behind you. That, that's everything. Without that, Ezra's still crying at the wall, right? I mean, nothing happens. But because Ezra here, you know, and, and this is the, the difficult thing with leadership too, you know, coming from my standpoint that's been in, in sales management for a long time and, and Michael can attest with his leadership roles with the company is that, you know, sometimes the leader is the one that needs the most encouragement. You know, when you've got a very hard decision to make and you have no idea how you're going to break terrible news to your staff that, you know, hey, look, boys, we're, we're going to go on a different line. This is going to hurt. This is going to be difficult. This is going to be hard. We think it's worth it on the other side. But but that moment of, of, of fear, of indecision, of I don't know how to do this, all of that melts in verse four. It, Ezra is locked up. He has no idea how to tell the people what they have to do. And here comes Shek and I. I just think of how many. I just think of how many times in in my business career I wish that there was a Shekinah that had stood up and said, "We are with you, man." Mm -hmm. That is, man. You just the the uh, the energy and encouragement that would come from hearing that. Man, that is so powerful. And and I'll, I'll tell you the, the kind of the paradox of this, or at least in my mind, is Shekinah was a fantastic follower. And because of that, he was in a lot of ways a leader. And, and so, you know, we're playing around with words here a little bit and I don't, I don't mean to get too cute, but because he was, <laughs> yeah, he does. Because, because he was willing to be an outstanding follower, because he was willing to be the second guy that stood up and said, we are with you. We are following you. I, I, again, I think he was, it's just an important in Ezra here in this movement that that there had to be some momentum behind this idea. And Ezra wasn't going to do that alone. He had to have people that were willing to stick their necks out to be the second one and the third one in line before it had some momentum. 
And so by being a great follower, the influence that Sheck and I had, he was also a great leader. And so, you know, leadership doesn't only come from those in authority. Leadership also comes from those who are great followers. And you, you, can, you can be a fantastic um, influencer um, by being a great follower. Well, I think the other part of this that's that's very unique that's 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 a great business principle is sometimes that is the best you can do to influence those around you is to show them how to follow, right? Yes. You know, Sheck and I is not standing up at the crowd and saying, "Ezra, you're weak. I've got a vote of no confidence. We're taking over. I got better ideas. You stop crying. Somebody needs to do the work. And if it ain't you, it'll be me." He's saying. Look, boys, we all need to rally around our leader. And, and you know, again, the, the, the leadership, the management, the ruler mentality of, you know, well, I need to make the guy that's ahead of me look bad so that I can take his job is nonsense. You know, really what we see here is Sheck and I saying, you know, he's our leader. And, and we do this stuff all the time. It's the most aggravating thing in the world that we want those in front of us or those that are in rule or that, that rulers or leadership or whatever, we almost root for them to fail so that we can replace them. But I mean, as, as I've used this analogy a hundred times when talking about our president or Congress, rooting for them to fail is also like getting on a plane and rooting for the pilot to crash. Like if they fail, we all fail. Like it's not good for anybody. You know, for the president to fail, for Congress to fail, none of that stuff is good for us because our guy didn't get in there. It, it, it doesn't mean, well, I didn't want it all to crash and burn so that the next time it comes up, our guy gets in. No, that's stupid. We want as much success as we can, no matter where we are. So especially if you don't like your boss, if you don't like the CEO of your company, you want it to go you still need that company to be successful. So you being a committed follower and showing others how to rally around and, and follow, that's the answer, not I hope this guy blows the company up. Because if the company and goes it, bankrupt, everybody's out of a job. And certainly agree with that. And I, and I also think that a lot of times the um, it's, more, it's more subtle than that. Um, you know, it's not just it wouldn't necessarily only be, Hey, Ezra, I don't, I don't like the job you're doing. Let me lead. Or it wouldn't only be, that's not a good idea. Here's my idea. That sometimes would be a lot more subtle, just going to the, the Israelite next to you and say, look, I'm not sure, but let's give this guy, let's give this guy a try. Let's give this guy a couple of weeks. And which is just a subtle way of saying, you know, this is not going to work. And then we'll, and then we'll do something different. Um, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a subtle undermining of leadership and authority, you know, that happens in ways like that all the time, instead of we are with you, be strong and let's do it. Um, you know, there, there's such a huge difference between, you know, we'll give you, you know, we'll give you a little bit of rope here. Don't mess up mm -hmm. versus we are with you, be strong and do it. Um, uh, well, I think there's, and, there's so much even, there's so much power in being a in being a committed follower to something you believe in. And, and even the first part of it, arise, this is your task. You're the guy for the job. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying. This yes. is you, you can do this and we're going to follow you. But but we believe in you and we believe you can do this because this is your task. This isn't 
over your head. It's not over your skis. It's hard. It's brutal. It's terrible. But you can do it. And, and I we're think we're that's, that's the answer. Yeah. And so, you know, as we were at, kind of at our hard stop here, so as, as we kind of try to put a bow on this whole thing, you know, one of the best things we can do to influence those around us, if we want to be successful in business, is being a good follower to our leaders, right? There's only one CEO, there's only one board of directors, there's only one president of whatever corporation you're in. So whatever role you find yourself in, most of us are followers on some level. And, and being a good follower is successful in business, right? Again, we, don't, we shouldn't have to give this disclaimer, but I feel like we have to here. Of course, don't follow the guy that's wanting you to break the law or to do something immoral or unethical. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about following those that are leading in the right path, in the right direction, and, and not questioning. And, and we may not agree with how they're doing it, but if as long as it's not unethical or immoral, we, we got to be better about getting, getting on board here. And that will give us opportunities to lead later, if that's what our skill set is. But showing others how to follow is, is massive. It's, it's huge for, for our business. And, and to our, our point that we started with, the most important guy oftentimes isn't the leader. It's, it's the first guy to stand up and say, I'm, I'm in on this. So, you know, we, as much as the billion dollar industry focuses on leadership, I think there's a lot to be said for followers. And if you're not creating and developing followers within your organization, and we're not being followers ourselves within the organization, then I think we're missing out on, on a lot of profitability and, and, um, and growth within our own companies. Yeah. I'd, I'd, just to close it out, I'd rather be a, a leader with a decent idea and a lot of committed followers than a leader with a fabulous idea and a bunch of cynical half committed followers. I mean, there's just, there's no comparison because mm -hmm. that the one with the, the one with the people who are really in on the idea, even if it's just half decent, the ones who are really in on the idea are going to be successful. Uh, a, a fabulous idea with, um, kind of half committed followers just that it that runs out of it runs out of steam and spins off a lot of people pretty quickly absolutely well thank you all for joining in with us we appreciate uh the time appreciate you all uh spending some time with us this morning um hopefully these lessons can help you again make uh in the comments or shoot us texts or emails if there's any characters you want us to look at um, we've got a list that we're working off of and hopefully before long, we'll, uh, we'll have another one out here. Thank you as always, Mr. Ray. Enjoyed it, my friend.